0: Welcome to Thrive Worship. We're glad that you're here along with Reagan Gilliland. uh, We get to co-pastor this worship community and we just want to say that we're so glad that you're with us this morning. And those who are here for the very first time, we're especially glad that you're here. We hope that if nothing else, you encounter uh, the love of Lovers Lane today where we believe our mission is loving all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And those who are joining us online, uh, we welcome you as well. We're glad that you're with us today. And so we continue today in a sermon series called, (coughs) oh man, first cough. I thought I was done with that. All right, that's why I got the coffee up here to help wash that down and energize me. So uh, we're continuing in a series called No Outsiders today where we've been looking at, for the first three weeks, we looked at Paul's first uh, letter to the church in Corinth. Last week, this week, and next week, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. And Paul and Luke are, are similar in their theologies of the church and who the church is for. And both of them are for this sort of radical reinterpretation of inclusion in the church. They're both coming out of the Jewish tradition, a tradition that is very um, insular. It, it's very much around the identity of Israel, and there are people that are in and there are people that are out. And they're going to lead the Christian movement to, to be this expression that is radically inclusive of not just some people, but all people uh, throughout the world. And so we've been considering their teaching of us uh, through their words that are 2,000 years old. And we've been considering what it means for the church today to adopt that same kind of vision and same kind of course. And so uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. Last week we were in Luke chapter 5. And and, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what's coming up before the scripture we're going to read today. So last week was Matthew, or not Matthew? It was it was in Luke's gospel, and it was. Simon Peter and a few others being called as the first disciples through this act of fishing. And uh, if you were here last week or you were with us online, you, you heard me talk about how before that fishing story were these stories of healing, and after the fishing story were these stories of healing, and then Jesus continues to heal people up until the beginning of chapter six. And it's the beginning of chapter six that he heals people, but this time it's different. He's healing them on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath uh, was the Jewish um, is the Jewish day of rest during their seven day week. And uh, we still practice Sabbath, though not as strictly, in the Christian church today. Um, in two thousand years ago, if you were a, a um, religious Jew, uh, the Sabbath meant no work, and work included a lot of things. Uh, and if you're an Orthodox Jew today, uh, you still practice Sabbath very strictly. Um, one of the things you couldn't do was heal people. Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath. And that was sort of the first moment that, that he's really coming up against the rigidity of the religious in his day. Because they, they start to sort of persecute him and mock him for daring to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Which sounds kind of silly to us today. Why in the world would it be wrong to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And it certainly sounded wrong to Jesus But I think it's this sort of awareness that uh, the way that religion had gone in his day is not the way it was intended to be. So that's the beginning of chapter 6. And then Jesus calls his apostles, his 12 apostles, apart from his disciples. In the Gospel of Luke, when it talks about disciples, it really means all of the Jesus followers. It's not just the 12. It's dozens, if not hundreds, of people who are following Jesus from place to place, uh, listening to his teaching, witnessing his miracles. he calls his 12 apostles apart from his disciples. And then He it says that he goes up on the he comes down from this mountain and and there's this crowd this great crowd as he comes down from the mountain and and there's this healing that's coming just out from him emanating from him and everybody that's there is healed and then we get to our scripture that we're going to read today which begins in Luke six chapter or chapter six verse twenty if you want to follow along in your own Bibles or on your Bible app Luke six verse twenty. And this is the the, the Luke version of the Sermon on the Mount, so to speak. Now, a lot of us are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. This is the famous sermon in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is up on sort of a a, a hilltop setting, a mountaintop setting. and, And he delivers this long and winding sermon that's full of some of the core teachings that we preach about a lot today. Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is very famous. Luke's version is what we call the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus comes down from the mountain into this sort of valley or this plain, this level place, which is important for Luke because um, every gospel kind of tells the Jesus story a little bit differently. And while Matthew is trying to make a case for Jesus to to Jews living in Jerusalem, Luke is going to try to make a case for Jesus to people who have no idea what Judaism is. He's going to make a case for Jesus to the common person, the people who are outside of Israel, and and especially those who are not in the the positions of power. He's there for the every person. That's the kind of Jesus that that Luke wants to proclaim. So in his version, Jesus comes down from the mountain. He preaches from this level place. And he starts off his sermon the same way that Matthew does with this, this list of beatitudes. A lot of us are familiar with the beatitudes. Blessed are the blank. Right, da, 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 da. blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. Matthew has nine beatitudes. Luke is only going to have four. Luke kind of cuts to the chase. I like the gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke doesn't mess around. It doesn't leave a lot open to uh, wondering what he means by things because he puts a real fine point on what he's talking about, and I'll say more about that in a second. So what we're about to read is Luke's version of the beatitudes, and and uh, we're going to consider what this means for us today as a church who wants to be a place for all people in a church that, as Luke talks about, wants to be bearers of the kingdom of God. So let's pray before we read our scripture this morning, the lesser-known Beatitudes in the Gospel of Luke, and um, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks for those scriptures that we can skim over. We give you thanks for the parts of the Bible that maybe we're less familiar with. God, we give you thanks for... The witness of Luke and his ability to cut to the chase. God, we just ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your words this morning, that you would allow these scriptures to leap off of the screens and off of the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts, that they might in some ways comfort us, in some ways convict us, but that they certainly change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So beginning in verse 20, he says this. Jesus raised his eyes to his disciples, so the, 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 the large group of Jesus followers, and he says this, happy are you, or blessed are you, who are poor, because God's kingdom is yours. Happy are you who hunger now, because you will be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Happy or blessed are you when people hate you, reject you, insult you, and condemn your name as evil because of the human one. Rejoice when that happens. Leap for joy because you have a great reward in heaven. Their ancestors did the same things to the prophets. Let's stop there for now. Let's stop there for now. Rejoice. Happy are you who are poor and who are hungry and who weep are mocked, and persecuted, and condemned, don't you feel happy? Anybody feeling happy this morning? One of the uniting things in, in the Christian faith around the world, there's not a whole lot that Christians agree, with, agree about uh, throughout the world, but one of the things that I see as a uniting thread is, is the Lord's Prayer. It's scriptural, it's biblical, it's the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. And it gets recited in churches throughout all denominations, all churches around the world. And and I bet most of us in the room have heard these words, recited these words, hundreds if not thousands of times. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That might be the most sort of memorable phrase in, in the Lord's prayer. It sure sounds nice. It just sort of rolls off your tongue. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's some things that we hear or say so many times that they lose their power. We forget just how powerful these words are. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a radical, powerful statement that we just let roll off our tongues. Have you thought about that? I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about that in light of Luke's beatitudes. Because Luke's beatitudes are different than Matthew's. You know, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But that's not what Luke says, is it? See, Luke doesn't let us off the hook. He doesn't let us kind of sentimentalize or he doesn't let us uh, move from a a realistic place to sort of a, a thinking place. He says, blessed are the poor, period. Blessed are those who are hungry now, period. Hungry, not hunger for righteousness, hungry. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are mocked and who are rejected. When we talk about bringing God's kingdom to earth, Asking heaven to come to earth. That's a big statement. And I want to let you in on a little secret. Heaven is not where we are going to spend eternity. Did you guys know that? Who thought that when you died you're going to go to heaven and live in heaven for eternity? Anybody? It's okay if you did. I did for a long time. That's not 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 what we believe. You don't believe that. You didn't know that you don't believe that, but you don't believe that. The whole idea of God's kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom of God, that is heaven crashing into the earth. God's final plan is not heaven. That's that's the kingdom of God right now. The final plan is that that kingdom of God would become realized in the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the final plan. We're going to live for eternity in this new creation when the kingdom of God is made real here on earth, when heaven and earth are one. That's what we talk about, you'll hear people say, I got a little glimpse of heaven here on earth, right? We want that to be made real. And that's the point that I want to drive home first, is that the promise of God's kingdom is grounded in the real world. And Luke tries to put a really fine point on this. He says, the kingdom of God is coming for the poor, Not the poor in spirit. The poor, the people who are living in poverty in the real world. The kingdom of God is here to change that. The kingdom of God is here for the hungry. Not those who hunger for righteousness. No, the people who are wondering where their next meal is coming from. The kingdom of God is here to change that. The kingdom of God is here for the weeping. The kingdom of God is here for the mocked and the rejected. So think what what, what Luke is trying to make clear in his telling of Jesus' sermon is that we can rob the gospel of its power when we make it into this thing that it's not supposed to be, when we make it into this sort of thought exercise. We talk about faith and about belief as though it all happens up here sometimes. That Jesus is is some sort of philosopher, some sort of teacher that has really good things that he says that we should think about. And Luke has no patience for that. I'm not saying that we should not think about our faith. Trust me, I'm a big fan of loving God with our minds. It's a big reason why I'm a Methodist. But if we keep the gospel and we keep Jesus secluded up into this space and never let it anywhere else, we have failed the gospel. If we think our job as Christians is to think about the poor or to think about the hungry or to think about the weeping we to think about the mocked or the rejected or the persecuted or the condemned. If we think our job is to think, we have failed the gospel. Jesus isn't just talking about the poor in spirit. He's talking about the poor. He's not talking about the hungry in spirit. He's talking about the hungry. Jesus didn't come to change the way that we think. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came to change the way that we are. The way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we live. Jesus came to change all of it. Jesus didn't come to change the way that we think. Jesus came to change the way that we are. He came to eliminate things like poverty and hunger. He came to eliminate things like suffering and rejection and condemnation. Those are the things that Jesus came. He came to change reality, and we try so hard to box him into a thought exercise. Have you been guilty of this before? I have. Again, I'm not saying stop thinking about your faith. Please think about your faith, but then allow your faith to change the way that you are. Allow us to realize that the kingdom of God coming to earth is about bigger things than just how we feel or how we think. Now, that's easy to say and hard to do, right? It's easy to not in agreement say, I should let Jesus change the way that I am. I should want the kingdom of God to change the world as it is. I should, I should absolutely, and we hear Luke saying these things, we think, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. But it's easier said than done, right? Who here loves changing everything about the way that they are? Anybody? No. No. I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about what we get sold by sort of our culture, our world as to what we should want to be, the way that we should want to be, right? I was thinking about who here watched the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago? Now, who here watched the Super Bowl commercials from a couple weeks ago? A lot more hands go up, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we, we are surrounded by commercials these days, right? Um, smartphones really changed the way that marketing works. I mean, we are surrounded by ads these days. They're, yeah, they're on our billboards, yeah, they're on our TV screens, but now they're in our facebook feed they're in the little games that we play they're everywhere they're constant they're always and 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 advertisers are trying to sell us on the way that we should want to be right and and i think that advertisers maybe read the gospel of luke because what are they mainly trying to sell us they know that we want to be what we want to be rich we want to be full we want to be happy we want to be well liked right the Gospel of Luke is talking about people who are poor and who are hungry and who are weeping and who are rejected. And marketers know that we want to be rich and we want to be full and we want to be happy and well-liked. And so what do they sell us? They say, well, if you just get this, if you just buy this, you'll be rich. Or if you just buy this, you'll be full. Those are the hardest ones for me when I see like the, the Whataburger commercial or something. You know, like, oh, I do want that right now. If you just buy this, you'll you'll be happy. Oof. In a culture that is really suffering in a big way with depression right now. That's a big one. I've succumbed to that one sometimes. Or here's another hard one. If you just buy this, if you just give us your money, you will be well liked. Who wants to be well liked in the room? Don't we all? Most of us. Some of us don't, and you make it very clear that you don't want to be well liked, I guess, but you know. And I'm a sucker for these things. Are you a sucker for these things? I'd say the, the one that I'm the biggest sucker for is like the tech gadgets. Anybody like an early adopter for tech gadgets? I love techie gadgets. And Reagan has a running joke that I've got this basket full of just all this random tech stuff that I bought that I was convinced was going to change my life and make it perfect, and it just sits there, and the batteries died three years ago. You know. But I was convinced at one point if I get this Kindle Fire, you know, it's going to change my life. If I get this iPad, it's going to change my life. This is good. This will leave me satisfied forever. I want to be rich, and I want to be full, and I want to be happy and well-liked. And guess what? It's kind of funny that we get sold on that because their whole business model is that those things don't actually work, right? No business wants a one-time customer. That's a failing business model, right? Right? whole idea is that we come back again and again. And I, I know that what I'm saying right now is kind of basic stuff, but I promise I'm going somewhere with this. The things that we get sold, that the life that we're being sold by our culture and our world around us is not a life that's ever going to lead to satisfaction. Because you could have all of the cars and all of the houses and all of the money and all of the food, and you could uh, make yourself feel like you're as happy as possible, and you could pretend like everybody around you likes you. And you know that you're still going to wake up one day and there's going to be this feeling of deep dissatisfaction. And why does that exist? Where does that come from? I want to suggest something this morning. I want to suggest that we are, that we are ultimately dissatisfied by these individual pursuits because God created us to be dissatisfied by these things. When God created human beings... He looked down at the first one and he said, it is not good that they should be alone. And usually we'll use that scripture to uplift marriage. But I would suggest that God looked at us and said, it's not good for them to be alone because God wanted something about us to be inherently connected when he created us. And so maybe when we wake up one day and we realize we're dissatisfied, it's not because we need something more for ourselves, but because there's something in us that says, I'm dissatisfied because the world's not right. There's something in me that is inherently connected to the world around me and the people around me, and there's poverty, and that's not right. And there's hunger, and that's not right. And there's weeping, and that's not right. And there's rejection and condemnation and mocking, and that's not right. Maybe the reason we're so dissatisfied by these individualistic pursuits that we are sold routinely is because those things are never meant to satisfy us. We were wired to be connected. We were wired to care. Maybe you're waking up dissatisfied because you have a soul and you're empathetic. Praise be to God, right? Maybe that's hard to articulate, but maybe the Gospel of Luke is trying to point this out to us. God created us to desire the kingdom of God, to want these kinds of things. And if the kingdom of God's going to be made real, then things like poverty have to disappear, things like hunger have to disappear, suffering has to disappear. Rejection, condemnation have to disappear. Maybe we're dissatisfied because we know those things are still alive and well, and there's something in our spirit and our soul that just isn't satisfied with that. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a really good thing. That's a blessing that God gave us, that kind of concern for the world around us. Because here's the hard thing. None of us get to live in the kingdom of God alone. Maybe you think that sounds sound nice. Our introverts in the room are thinking a a kingdom of God for one sounds pretty nice. But the kingdom of God is bustling with people. And, And Luke is telling us it's bustling with the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the rejected. We're not meant to live alone. We're not meant to live individual lives. We're not meant to care only for ourselves. And so I hear Luke saying to me, Scott, do you want to feel rich? What if you gave generously of yourself? What if you helped to eliminate poverty? Maybe that's how you'll feel rich. Scott, do you want to feel full? Maybe you go and try to address the hunger in the world around you, and not just a spiritual hunger, but actual hunger. Have you ever volunteered for Feed My Starving Children? I've never felt more full than when I get done packing a million meals for kids that I'll never see. Scott, do you want to feel happy stop running from people who are real go closer to people who are emotional and who are suffering and who need someone in their lives yeah, happiness is overrated joy is a spiritual gift and some of the moments of greatest joy for me was when god allowed me to move close to someone who was in a position of suffering And I could sense the Holy Spirit working through me, and it was difficult, and it was hard, and I probably felt like weeping when I went away. Their burdens became mine, but my spirit was joyful because it was real. I get so sick and tired of plastering a smile on my face, don't you? I hear Luke saying, Scott, do you want to be well-liked? First of all, get over that. There are people in this world that aren't going to like you. There are people in this world that don't like you. There might be people in this room that don't like you, that don't like me. I'm not really sure why you're here. Um, but Scott, if you if you want to understand what love is, then, then do things that are worth being rejected for. I saw a quote this past week, spend enough time with sinful people that it, that it makes the religious types uncomfortable. I'm, I'm butchering it, but... Spend enough time with sinners that the religious people start to get uncomfortable. Scott, if you want to understand what love looks like, maybe you should step closer to those being mocked and persecuted. My point is this. I look at the kind of kingdom of God that Luke's casting a vision for. And I hear Luke saying to me this week, Scott, for for God's kingdom to win, sometimes we will need to lose. Sometimes we will need to lose. You know what Luke goes on to say in his Beatitudes? This part Matthew leaves out. Can we go back to that second half of that scripture, Jake? Where it says, woe to you. Oh, yes. Here's the second half of the Beatitudes. This one doesn't make it on to throw towels as often. As, or to tea towels as often. Here it is. But how terrible for you who are rich. Because you've already received your comfort. How terrible for you who have plenty now because you will be hungry. How terrible for you who laugh now because you will mourn and weep. How terrible for you when all speak well of you. Their ancestors said the same things to the false prophets. The word of God, people. Now I don't say this for those of us who feel like we, we are rich or we are full or maybe you are happy or, or maybe you are well-liked. I don't say this to condemn you. Or I don't think Jesus says this to make me feel condemned. What I hear Luke telling me and what I hear Jesus telling me through Luke is that if this kingdom of God is going to be made real, then some of us are going to have to feel like we're losing sometimes. If the poor are going to to be raised up, then maybe those of us who are richer are going to need to be brought a little bit lower. And if the hungry need to eat, then maybe some of us need to offer up some of our food. And those who are mourning need some of us who are laughing to come closer and allow, our, allow their mourning to become our own for a moment. And those who are condemned need us to step in close and to be an advocate for them. We were just teaching, Reagan and I, a, a marriage retreat. We've, we taught one two weeks ago for our church, and then this past weekend we were with another church. And uh, I was, we were talking about you know, conflict in marriage. How many of us in the room like to win? Yeah. North Dallas, do we like to win? I mean, I, I I know I I know that we like to win. I know a lot of us are competitive. A lot of us don't even get invited to game night, right? Because we'll, we'll toss the board over when we realize we're losing, you know. We like to win, we like to wake up and win, we like to go to the work, we like to go to work and win, we like to watch our kids win at sports. We we like to win. But when you're part of a relationship and you care more about that relationship than yourself, you realize that for that relationship to win, sometimes you have to lose, right? I can't win every conflict that I have with Reagan. I can't always be the winner. If I'm always the winner, then that's not a fair relationship. I have to be willing to lose. I have to be willing to admit that I might not know everything. I have to be willing to allow Reagan to have influence over me. I think the same is true in our world. I think it's the same is true for the kingdom of God. We have got to get comfortable with the idea of being losers. Anybody want to be a loser? Does it sound fun? What if I said if we all got comfortable being losers, the kingdom of God would inch closer? Does that sound better to you now? Because let me tell you, the kingdom of God is chock full of losers. So it's, it's swimming with losers. And when I say losers, I mean people who look like losers from the marketing perspective. Because Jesus doesn't care what kind of watch you wear, what kind of car you drive, or what kind of house you have, doesn't care uh, how perfect your family looks, doesn't care how many likes you got on your Facebook post, how many retweets you got on your Twitter thread. Jesus doesn't give a flying flip about any of that. Let me assure you, I think Jesus does care about if we're willing to empty ourselves to the poor and hunger ourselves for the hungry and sit with those who are weeping and protect those who are condemned. And trust me, I'm preaching to myself because I like my stuff, and I like my food, and I like to feel happy. And the kingdom of God needs me to be a little bit more of a loser, which is a scary concept because I already feel like a pretty big loser all the time anyways. But I think that we should be comfortable being losers for Christ. I think we should be comfortable... Stepping away from the life that the world is calling us to because we know the life that Christ is calling us to may look like a losing life from the outside, but we know is a winning life for the kingdom of God. I want to get more comfortable being a loser. Do you? Who wants to be a loser with me? Amen? This week is kind of an interesting one for our denomination. Uh, I was raised United Methodist. Anybody else raised United Methodist in the room? Good number, good number. How many of us were not? How many of us, this is your first United Methodist Church you've ever attended? Curious. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's cool. I was raised United Methodist. I owe my life. I owe my life to the United Methodist Church. Actually, quite literally, because I was born at Harris Methodist Hospital, and I was born septic. So I owe my life to the Methodists. Thank you for building hospitals, Methodists. That's pretty cool. Third grade, I started going to a Methodist church near my house. Seventh grade, my cousins and my aunt moved away. I talked about this last week, uh, briefly. I lost sort of half of my family, and I leaned into my church. My church welcomed me in and and gave me a family. Ninth or tenth grade, I began hearing a call to ministry, and the pastors and leaders of my church really poured into me and helped me pursue that call. After college, the Methodist church gave me my first job, To Lovers Lane. Methodist Church gave me a place where I could have an office romance that turned into a seven and a half year long marriage. Thank you, Lover's Lane. Seven and a half in counting, I should say. Methodist Church gave me my daughter. She was born at Presby, sorry. Um, I owe my life to the Methodist Church. You know what's funny is I was raised in a church that was chock full of people that disagreed with each other. Kind of like Lover's Lane. But what they didn't disagree about was loving a loser like me. They agreed about that. I owe my life to this denomination. This denomination is about to be in the middle of a really heated argument, really heated conflict, almost like a married couple, except there's about 18 spouses in this relationship. (laughs) This weekend, upcoming, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, we're going to be engaged in um, what's called a general conference conference. And it is a global gathering of delegates, (coughs) 860-ish delegates from around the world, delegates from all over America, all over Africa, all over the Philippines, all over Europe. We're coming together, and it's especially called General Conference, um, where we'll be addressing um, issues surrounding human sexuality, specifically gay and lesbian persons, same-sex marriage, ordination. It's tough stuff. We've been arguing about this for almost 50 years. Almost 50 years we've been arguing about this. And this general conference is the, the moment that we've sort of chosen and, and we've asked a team to work on uh, coming up with a way forward for our denomination. They've done that work for two or three years. They've come up with a couple of plans. A couple other plans have been written as well. And there will be four plans that are submitted to this general conference to be considered and amended and voted on. And I don't want to get into the details of what all that's going to look like. What could happen after general conference is a natural question. Uh, this denomination could become a little bit more progressive than we currently are. Uh, we could become a little bit more traditional than we currently are. Uh, nothing could change. That may be the biggest possibility, uh, some people think. Um, Stan and I and others at this church have been vocal advocates for the plan that's been recommended by the bishops. It's called the One Church Plan. Essentially, it's a plan that would allow... Uh, it would basically say the Methodist Church, in terms of our official policy, um, it would allow churches the ability, if they wanted to, to vote to have same-sex weddings on their campus, and it would allow annual conferences, regional areas, to decide if they wanted to ordain LGBT clergy. And um, I'm hopeful that this will come that this will allow us to move forward. I think it's a plan that allows us to have a church kind of like the church I grew up in and kind of like the church we have today, where people can disagree with each other, but we can still be rallied around the cross and celebrate what ministry has done for our lives and celebrate our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I think that plan could get us there. Now, here's what I want us to know. First of all, we're not going to know anything by next Sunday. So when I put you at ease, Reagan's going to be up here preaching next Sunday. She's not going to be talking about general conference. We're going to be doing worship. The Sunday after that, general conference will have been done. Whatever's been decided has been decided. And guess what we're not going to do at Lover's Lane? We're not going to do worship about general conference. On March 3rd, we're going to have a worship service at 1030 in the sanctuary. We're going to be starting off our 75th year anniversary celebration. Y'all know we're turning 75 years old as a congregation here at Lover's Lane. Did y'all know that? You're about to know that a lot this year. Trust me we're going to be kicking that off with a big combined worship service. We're going to have our African congregations with us. We're going to have our Deaf Fellowship with us. We're going to have Crosswalk and Thrive and all the traditional worshipers all in one space. It is going to look like heaven on earth. A little bit of taste of heaven. And we're going to be celebrating the ministry that God has been doing here at Lover's Lane for 75 years. The reason we're going to do that is this. No matter what happens at General Conference this next Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, um, Lover's Lane is the same church that we were before, during, and after We are not going to be making any big decisions about what we're going to do, because one thing we believe in is non-anxious leadership. And the reality is we don't know what's going to happen this next weekend. What we do know is that God calls us to lead, number one, with prayer and discernment. And that's what we're going to do. That's what we're committed to. So I want you to know that no matter what happens at General Conference, we have committed, Stan and others and the Board of Stewards have been in conversation and have decided that no matter what happens, we are going to enter a time of prayer and discernment. And we want to ask our congregation to join with us in that. Because whether you've been a part of this church for one week or for 75 years, you know that God has done something masterful through this church. And let me tell you what, we're ready to gear up for another 75 years. Are you? That's what we're about to do on March 3rd. We're about to ask God to join with us again for another 75 years. So I want you to know that your leaders um, are attentive to this. I want you to know that you can follow us if you want to on social media. If you really care about Methodist bureaucracy, I will be posting live updates. Mostly, I want you to know that the church you know and love is going to be the church you know and love two weeks from now, and that we will lead as we always have, with prayer and discernment and with love for the people that Luke spells out, for the love, for the people in our congregations, for love for all types of people. We don't want a church of liberals or a church of conservatives or a church of Republicans or a church of Democrats or a church of only poor people or only rich people or only white people or only black people or only men or only... We want a church not just to straight people, not just to gay people, not just to people from this country, not just people from this country. We want a church of everybody. We believe in our mission statement of loving all people in the relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe that God's spirit can lead our denomination in a place, in a direction like that, but we know how God is leading us as a local congregation. So we're not anxious. We are prayerful, and we ask you to be in prayer with us. In the spirit of losing, I wanted to close today with with something of a prayer myself. Um, Stan and I are such Methodist nerds, we wrote a book about all this stuff. And towards the end of it, I I wrote something that we knew we were going to be sending this book to delegates at General Conference. We were hoping they might read it. And I was thinking about how I wanted to kind of conclude my thoughts. This is what I came up with. I have no idea. Maybe like three delegates have read this. I have no idea. I'm hoping more than that. But it, it, it fits with what we're talking about today. And I think you'll see why. I wrote this. In June 2018, this past June, I gathered with lay and clergy colleagues for the North Texas Annual Conference and sang a song that has quickly become familiar even in the five short years I've been attending. The song is, And Are We Yet Alive? It's It's a hymn. And it serves as a poignant reminder for us as we begin our work each year. This year, however, the lyrics took on a different meaning for me. I sang them as one who was to be ordained roughly 24 hours later. I was about to join a covenant whose future is murky, nothing certain past February of 2019. I was about to climb aboard that many believe to be a sinking ship. With these thoughts swimming in my head, I heard myself and the entire clergy sing these words. Here's some lyrics. Let us take up the cross till we the crown obtain and gladly reckon all things loss so we may Jesus gain gladly reckon all things lost. I think we ought to leave these words on the screens in future conferences. Some Methodist voices promote a mentality that in the future of United Methodists there must be winners and losers. And Lord, no one wants to lose. We don't want to lose our arguments, our property, our pension, uh-oh, or our political influence. As a recovering know-it-all, I am not sure of many things, but I am very sure of this. I want the United Methodist Church to lose. I want us to lose the entrenched position we find ourselves in. I want us to lose the wearied attitudes with which we meet our sisters and brothers every four years. I want us to lose our pessimism that expects inaction and gridlock to rule the day. I want us to lose our pride. I want us to lose our self-righteousness. I want us to lose our penchant to reduce others to labels. I want us to lose the false dichotomy that plagues what should be nuanced discussions. I want us to lose our love affair with legalism. I want us to lose our distrust in each other. I want us to lose our cynicism. And I want us to lose our fear. I want us to lose anything that keeps us from uplifting the cross and proclaiming the gospel so that the world, ourselves included, might gain Jesus. The one church plan is not perfect. The United Methodist Church is not perfect. Lovers Lane is not perfect, nor is the church of anyone reading these words. But I see something in the one church plan that I know our denomination desperately needs if we hope to survive to see our centennial and beyond. The plan seeks to build trust. Trust in our churches, trust in our clergy and our lay leadership, trust in the living relationship with God and Christ. As a young pastor who remains resolutely optimistic about his denomination that formed my faith, I pray we might lose ourselves these next months and in so doing gain unity in our named essentials, grace in non-essentials, and trust that God is guiding us all United Methodists all around the world. I hope we can lose so that we might gain Christ. Because my friends, the world needs the witness of Lovers Lane and the Methodist Church. The world needs people like you who are ready to walk out to address the needs of the world, to bring God's kingdom crashing in, to lead people into relationship Jesus Christ I hope you'll join with me in prayer these next weeks and months together I know that God is not done with us yet Amen let us pray Gracious God we give you thanks for this day we give you thanks for your words this morning through your servant Luke God I give you thanks for this church both Lovers Lane and in our larger United Methodist denomination. God, I give you thanks for the ways in which it has raised all of us up, has led us all into a deeper relationship with you. God, I ask that we would remember we live in the real world. Remind us that in your kingdom there is no poverty, there is no hunger, there is no sorrow, there is no mocking or condemnation. And that we, we, Get the honor and the privilege to be your kingdom builders here. So God, allow us to pray. Not only with our mouths and with our hearts, but with our hands and our feet. Allow us to pray and then lead us to build. And your sons let me pray. Amen.